wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Welcome. Please connect with us at Bleeding Daylight on Facebook and Instagram. Links and other episodes are at bleedingdaylight.net. Please share Bleeding Daylight with others. Is a life of faith meant to be easy? My guest today doesn't think that God wants to give us a free ride, but she refuses to believe that our trials should defeat us. It's on our TVs, in the movies, and oftentimes in our churches. Our culture is saturated with stories that take us through tough circumstances before being quickly resolved and tied up with a pretty bow. It might be what we yearn for, but life rarely mirrors those neat stories. Katrina Robertson's life has been anything but neat. She's a speaker, the author of the book Jura Number 11, and is a coach for those involved with fostering and adoption. She's my guest on Bleeding Daylight today. Katrina, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. You talk a lot about being able to rise through life's trials, and I know that One of the seasons where you faced real struggle, which led to you writing your book, was a literal trial. How did you go from simply doing your civic duty to facing your own legal issues? It's a kind of a wild story for sure. And one, when I just tell the synopsis, I kind of get a, what? Now, what what happened there? And so, yeah, the short version is I was called for jury duty I'm a very busy person. This particular season was a hard season. In fact, I got the summons during my daughter's wedding, already kind of overwhelmed. And it's one of those is like, oh, good gracious, I don't have time for this. In the U.S., when they do jury trials, you're kind of like on this panel of possibly being called for jury during a four to six month period. So I'd been called several times, but then once you get to the courthouse, they go through this kind of called a voir dire process to try to select the best 14 individuals to actually be the jury on that particular case. And I had gotten to that stage a few times, but I'd never been selected to actively serve on a case. This particular instance, I was chosen It was a murder trial in which the defendant was a 60-year-old woman, piano teacher, never been in trouble. She had shot and killed her husband, and her defense was self-defense. It was a four-day trial, and it was something I struggled with greatly, the, the responsibility of it and just the emotional struggle of, of getting to a place where you have to literally judge another human being and give a sentence to them. It it was very difficult. And I'm very vulnerable with how difficult it was for me in the book to help people see exactly where I was. And when it was all said and done, three days later, we did end up coming to a unanimous decision of not guilty on first degree murder, which was the charge and guilty on second. Three days later, another jury member came back to the courthouse and filed a juror misconduct complaint against me. And from that complaint, then um, I ended up charged with contempt of court. And then a mistrial was granted, then snowballed into this nightmare within the judicial system. 
It's not what you expect when you turn up just wanting to help out in the midst of the busyness. You think, well, yes, someone's got to serve and it's not an easy thing, but it's not what you expect at all. Oh, correct, correct. What was the basis of this other juror coming to the court and saying, hey, this juror has done the wrong thing? What was the basis of their complaint? I'd have to back up just a little bit. The state, the prosecution, they had 17 witnesses, and all 17 of those witnesses were able to testify. Again, the charge was first-degree murder. In order to be determined guilty on first degree, they needed to prove that she had intent to kill her husband. All of the the witnesses were just, she killed him. Well, we knew that from the get-go. So 17 of them, and then the defense's turn, she had 14 witnesses. Of those 14, each time one of them would be called, the prosecution would then object to them being a witness and testifying. The judge would sustain it, and they were not allowed to testify. There were only three witnesses that were allowed to testify, the defendant herself being one of them. So you're kind of left going, what? Like, we weren't allowed as the jury to know who they were, what they were to testify of, why it was not allowed, any of that. And I believe people's stories are so important. And I found out that during a trial, you never get the full picture. It's just not allowed. Evidence is given to you in a cherry-picked manner and often in a very emotionally manipulative way. We had this defendant and this victim, and I really didn't know who they were or their stories. All I knew is that she shot and killed her husband, supposedly in self-defense, and that He died by gunshot wound, and there were allegations that he was an alcoholic and was abusive, but none of that was allowed into testimony. I'm a researcher by nature, but we all know that when you're on a jury, it's hammered into you. You can't research the case. I didn't have any problem at all not researching the case. I felt after four days in the courtroom, I knew more about that case than I'd ever dredge up in some newspaper article. But I felt like I should be able to know who that victim was just a little bit better, to know something other than his name and that he died by gunshot wound. So I went to a database. I typed his name in, spent maybe five minutes, learned nothing, found nothing. I think there was a part of me that was like, Katrina, just leave it alone. You've got to trust the system and you've got to go into deliberations based only on what was provided during the the trial. So I shut my computer, went to bed and went to deliberations the next day. Well, after we had finished deliberating, we'd already summoned the bailiff to let them know that we had come to a conclusion. And we were kind of in this midst of awkward chit chat waiting to be called back into the courtroom. I just made the statement to no one in particular that it really bothered me that so many of the defendants' witnesses were not allowed to testify. And I I really wanted to know more about the victim. And I tried to see if I could learn anything about him, but I wasn't able to find anything. That was the statement I made. I guess another jury member really felt I needed to be dealt with. So (laughs) that's the story. 
it ended up with you going to court. There's legal costs and everything. And I think if people want to know more about that side of things, it's certainly in the book. Yeah. That was just one of the, the trials that you have been through. And as I said in the introduction, we like to see things tied up with a neat bow, and yet life is rarely like that. You've taken to speaking to people about rising out of trials, rising out of tribulations. Was that the main thing that brought that to mind for you? Or were there other things throughout life where you thought, you know what, this isn't going according to the script, but sometimes that's okay. It's not good, but it's okay. Absolutely. Yes. During that particular season of my life, and I used the opportunity to interweave parts of those other stories in the book as well. My husband and I, we've been married 28 years. He's worked in ministry for all of those years. And we have two biological children. And then we have three children, three boys that we adopted, two of them from foster care, one actually as an an adult. But I've always been very honest and vulnerable, like on social media, of just the, the hard of adoption, especially adoption from trauma. Adoption is a beautiful thing, and everybody loves to see the happy, smiling pictures of the family formed through adoption, but very few are able to be completely honest about the reality is all adoption, even the planned ones, are born from a place of loss and grief, and there's some heart in it. I was always very honest about that, and I would have other foster and adoptive moms reach out to me all the time over the years saying, you need to write a book. You need to write a book. Well, I had a house full of teenagers and I certainly didn't have time for that, nor did I feel like anybody would be interested in my sad stories. Once all this kind of happened with the jury trial and all that, I was like, you know, I am going to write that book. And so within the book, the theme is even though my boys were not doing really well, we were going through some just absolutely heartbreaking situations with them. There's days when I was going to feel those really hard emotions. And I say, kind of sit in your ash pile and cry and ask the hard questions and saying, you know, God, none of this makes sense. You know, you led me here and I feel like you're not hearing me. And I don't know if it's my faith isn't strong enough or I don't know what the problem is, but I'm angry right now. Sometimes we don't realize it is okay and safe to be vulnerable with those emotions with God. But then the key is, is you don't stay there. You choose to rise up out of that ash pile and say, but even if, even if all this doesn't work out, like my heart desires, I will still trust in you. I will still believe that you are good. And I will still believe that you love me. If you read the book, nearly every entry is, I'm going to choose to, uh, Breathe in, breathe out, and rise, you know, of making that decision to do that, no matter what life throws at you. I find it interesting that you mention social media and that you have been open with the hard times there because that's not often what we see in social media. Correct, correct. And I think that social media is a big contrast to scripture where on social media, everything's wonderful. We show the highlight reel and this is amazing. And yet in Scripture, we see, especially throughout the Psalms, Mm -hmm. God, I'm feeling really down. I'm feeling 
angry. I'm feeling all these emotions. Absolutely. And that's what you've mentioned as well, that you were prepared to go to God and say, hey, God, is this not enough faith? What's going on? I feel angry. And we see that in the scriptures. Absolutely. Why do you think that's not mirrored so much in our churches these days? Why do you think the church in general tends to mirror social media of everything's fine rather than looking at the hard things of life? I think that we kind of have this idea that you're not going to go through these hard times and feel these hard emotions if you truly have faith in God and if you're a good Christian. So kind of like the story of Job, I'm doing an in-depth study on Job right now. And everybody talks about what a great man of faith Job was and how God restored everything to him. But if you read the book of Job, it is exhausting because it's chapter after chapter after chapter of of Job crying out, uh, weeping, wailing, saying God can't hear him. God has blocked him. God has left him. He even calls God his enemy. His friends, they were trying to be helpful, but they were kind of like, hey, Job, you know, maybe maybe you're just not doing this right. Maybe you've got some sin in your life. Maybe you just don't have enough faith. You need to quit talking bad about God because maybe it's you. I find a lot of times even, you know, take the adoption out of it. If it's a biological child that becomes a prodigal, it's hard for moms to open up and be honest about that because they're afraid that people are going to think, It's their fault. They did something wrong. So I think that that's one part of it. And I actually am preparing for a women's conference this next weekend. I mentioned in my talk, Hebrews chapter 11, often referred to as the Hall of Faith. It lists all these individuals by name who saw God perform miracles because of their faith. But then right in the middle of verse 35, it completely kind of shifts gears and it talks about all these individuals who were tortured and sawed in two and wandered in goatskins, destitute and were homeless and they were martyred. And, and it says the world was not worthy of them. I think we forget sometimes that they named all those ones that saw the miracle by name, but there were so many who did not see the miracles that they couldn't even list them out. From that, I then jumped to the story of Daniel Daniel, and then there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Like they aren't mentioned by name in Hebrews 11, but you know they're talking about them because it says that God shut the mouths of lions and overcome the fiery flames of the furnace, something like that. And you know that's who they're talking about. Well, when you go to Daniel chapter 3, and I actually have my notes here, here handy, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are refusing to bow down and worship this idol that King Nebuchadnezzar has ordered everybody to worship. They're like, we're, we're not doing it. So he says, well, okay, whoever doesn't do it, we're throwing them into the furnace. And they're like, cool, we're not doing it. He becomes angry, pulls them into his chambers, <laughs> a king is, and he's saying, I'm going to throw you into the furnace if you do not bow down and worship this idol. They respond to him with, If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. They had enough faith to believe in God, even if God did not save them. Of course, we know in their particular story, God did choose to save them. And so I'm kind of making a big, huge circle here, answered 
part of the question with, you know, we're afraid it will look bad on us. But I also think sometimes when we try to talk about, we want to only show the good things because we want God to look better too. Does that make sense? It's kind of like, you know, if we, we talk about, you know, if people know that we were, we were praying for X, Y, and Z, and we had faith for X, Y, and Z to happen, but then it didn't. If we are honest and vulnerable that that didn't come to pass, it also kind of, I don't know, might might make God look bad. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like, we're trying to help him out here. We're only going to talk about the good things and the times when he did exactly what we would have liked for him to do. So I guess that's why we're like that. But I do know that anytime I was very vulnerable on social media at this is hard, this is really, really hard and I'm struggling, I would have so many people reach out to me and say, me too, me too. I think we do a disservice when we only talk about the good. Um, I think it leads some, I know even for myself, when I was in those really deep valleys, we have our pastor at our church. He's one of those like kind of enthusiastic balls of energy that is all positivity and encouragement. And and that's good. And that's great. But when you're not there, you begin to think, you know, maybe something's wrong with me. You know, maybe I really don't have enough faith. Another verse that I use when I'm given my talk is in Lamentations. You talked about Psalms. Absolutely. Over a third of the 150 songs are Psalms of despair and sorrow and asking the hard questions of God. And then the whole entire book of Lamentations is the root word lament is deep sorrow and grief. It's believed Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations. And in chapter three, he starts out with, I am the man who has seen affliction. And then a little bit further on in verse three, he says, yes, he has turned his hand against me. And again and again, all all day long, he turns his hand against me. And he goes on for 20 verses, just talking about how horrible everything is. And it's pretty much God's fault. But then the verses that we're actually familiar with in Lamentations chapter three are because of the Lord's great love, we do not perish for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And I think we do a little bit disservice when we only focus on God's great love and his never ending mercies and his faithfulness, because you may be sitting there as like saying, well, I sure am not feeling God's love right now. I am not seeing his mercies. Well, the reality is, I don't think Jeremiah was either, but he was able to say, okay, here's what I'm feeling. This is what I'm seeing in my circumstances, but I'm going to rise back up and step over here on the truth. And I'm going to proclaim it, even though my emotions and my circumstances do not seem to line up with the truth. That's where that true faith is kind of wrought at. You mentioned that when you reached out to people on social media saying, hey, I'm having a hard time of it, that there were many people that would just quietly say, hey, yeah, me too. And I think we so often are conditioned to believe that if we are people of faith, if we are following Jesus, then everything should turn out right. And so we walk with this shame and guilt because it's not working out like that. But scripture never promises that, does it? No, no, it doesn't. And the more you read and study, you realize that even these great Bible characters, 
man, things were tough. And they, for the most part, were pretty darn honest about how hard it was. There is a reality to our current life. Of course, this is what we're living. But how important is it, do you think, that we need to get that eternal perspective, that this life is a short time? Correct. Yes, yes. We will see God's faithfulness. Correct. And maybe not in this life, as hard as that might be. Absolutely. So it's like, how do you do that? How do you continue to stand on that truth despite these overwhelming emotions and these situations that are just devastating or out of control? And it is going back to the truth that the reality is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, when it talks about our momentary and temporary struggles are nothing compared to the glory that awaits us. And I believe that the reason why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were able to say, you know, even if he chooses to not save us from the fire, if we burn to death, it's okay, because it pales in comparison to eternity. And I think that those who are able to maintain that steadfast faith through insurmountable circumstances and seemingly silence from God is an understanding and a belief and a faith and those things they can't see eternity, but they believe them nonetheless. When you have a good grasp on that, it makes it a little bit easier to just keep rising. One of the things I know that you talk about is forgiveness. And if we're going through difficult times, oftentimes we are needing to forgive. And yet we sometimes confuse what forgiveness looks like. I know that we can forgive someone, but we need not put ourselves in a place of danger with that person again. Help me understand that balance between forgiveness, but not putting ourselves back in the place of danger. Did you read my notes that I'm studying for my conference next weekend? (laughs) So, So my first session is on feelings versus facts, which a lot of what we've just kind of talked about. My message in the afternoon is forgiveness versus reconciliation. (laughs) And the difference between those two and what forgiveness is and is not. And this kind of was birthed out of years and years ago, I taught a women's Bible study, Sunday school class, Kind of, and I did for years, and we would take different books and we'd study them. And we had taken the book by Gary Chapman, Love is a Way of Life, and had turned it into a study. And, you know, each chapter dealt with a different aspect of love, a character of love, and and went in more depth. One particular week was on forgiveness. And I got so angry. I even, I think, sent him a letter because he defined forgiveness as this. Forgiveness is using honesty, compassion, and self-awareness to reconcile with someone who has hurt you. And I was like, forgiveness does not mean reconciliation. So I turned to instead just good old Webster's Dictionary, and it defines to forgive to stop feeling angry or resentful towards someone for an offense, flaw, or mistake, or a shorter definition to cease to feel resentment towards. You know, I think a good way would be to compare it with justice. Like justice says somebody has to pay for this while forgiveness says you owe me nothing. Forgiveness is kind of the cornerstone of our Christian faith. And it is because it's something 
that is offered to us by Christ. And it's because of that that we can offer forgiveness to others. But the misconception is that by forgiving somebody, you are somehow excusing they're wrong or saying what they did wasn't wrong. And that absolutely is not true. It is it is releasing them to the Lord. It is saying they don't owe me anything and I'm going to let God take care of whatever is due them. And absolutely, that does not always mean that reconciliation is possible because reconciliation would require action on the other person's part, right? And God is not going to require us to do something that actually requires action on the other person. There's an example with 2 Timothy 4, 14-15. Paul writes, Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on guard against him because he strongly opposed us and our message. Paul quite possibly didn't really have bitterness towards this Alexander and had forgiven him. Maybe he even went to Alexander and told him that he had hurt him and done him wrong. But this does not mean that Paul is going to be ignorant and continuing to place trust in Alexander to help him fulfill the mission. I heard somebody say once, unforgiveness is like drinking a poison, but expecting the other person to die when it's really us that it's killing. And when you finally are able to grasp what true forgiveness is and release it, it's such a release. It's kind of like it it takes a weight off of your chest and you can breathe again. And you don't have to worry about whether that person accepts it, whether that person even knows the hurt they've caused you, it is completely in their court to reconcile. One of the verses that people go to that talk about reconciliation and getting it confused with forgiveness is the verse Matthew 5, 23 through 24 says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and then remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift and say, see, we're we're commanded to reconcile with people. Well, there's two problems. First, this is somebody that has something against you. You're, you're assuming that hopefully maybe they've forgiven you and now it's your job to go and be reconciled with them. But also I kind of highlight that he uses the words brother or sister. And actually I looked this passage up in every translation version I could find. And for the most part, just the word brother is used. Here, it's brother or sister in the NIV. And I believe that that is important to note because brother, he's referring to other believers. He doesn't say if anyone has something against you, nor does he say neighbor, which we know has been used in parables to kind of refer to basically anybody you encounter. You're supposed to love them. But he's specific here in talking about brother. And that is other believers. And you would assume that other believers, those who do his will, because I won't go into that verse too. There's another verse in Matthew that defines who a brother is. Those You would assume that those individuals, when you attempt to reconcile with them, that a future relationship can be restored because they are fellow believers. But absolutely not, folks. It is not possible to reconcile with everybody, nor would it be healthy to do so. So, so yeah, I have really strong beliefs and uh, opinions on forgiveness as well. 
Katrina, there's so much there that we, we've packed into our conversation. And I think probably there's people listening at the moment who say, I really need to learn more from Katrina, maybe read the book. Where's the easiest place for people to find you? Well, I do have a website. It's Katrina, K-A-T-R-I-N-A, and then the letter L, Robert Sun. Dot com. So that's the website. And, you know, I've got different blogs and different podcasts I've done on, on there. And you can send me a message there. If you're just interested in the book, Amazon's the easiest place. And it's juror number 11, like juror hashtag 11. And then the subtitle is a memoir of the broken justice system and rising from the trials of life. So you can find that on Amazon. If you, you know, since you are listening to a podcast, you might be an audiobook listener. There is an audiobook version. Full disclaimer, I recorded it myself and I am in no way a professional voiceover, but it was important to do it in my own voice. But if you are an audiobook listener, you may, you may find my uh, audio voiceover skills lacking, but you'll hear the story nonetheless. Katrina, I want to thank you for what you've put down because there's a reality to what you're describing that I think will connect with a lot of people, a lot of people who may have felt that they're failing at life and failing at faith, but realizing that's not necessarily the case, that we can see throughout scripture that there are going to be hard times and it's how we react to those hard times that, that make the difference for us. But I want to thank you for your time today. Thank you for your openness and for being on Bleeding Daylight. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.